All right, good morning, everybody. Um, before we get started, I want to just hit on a, uh, a couple of things. Um, first, schedule-wise, here's, here's how the day is going to go. So um, I'm going to open us up with a bit of an introduction, and then we have three speakers lined up. Uh, between all of those, introduction, speaker, 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 we'll take about a 10-minute break. That'll allow you to hit the restrooms, get coffee, update your parking. Uh, I know the max out there is four hours, so if you're parked in, a, in an angle parking spot, you'll need to do it at least once before you leave. The restrooms in this building are a little bit mystifying if you've never been here, so I wanted to walk you through that. There's a side door right in the fellowship hall here, and hanging next to the door are a couple of keys. If you need the restroom, grab the key, go out the side door, and then if you look to your left, you'll see a staircase going down. The bathrooms are down there. Uh, the side door will fight you but you can get out of it, I promise. So, so just keep it up. I find if you put your foot right on the bottom of it and open it forcefully, it, it gets the picture. So, um, so that's that. And then after all of the speakers, uh, we'll, have, we'll have lunch available. Um, we'll just run through the lunch line really quick. We'll grab a seat with our food and then we'll have a panel with all the speakers. So um, that's the plan for today. Let me pray and we'll get started. Father, I ask for your presence today by your spirit that you would be in our midst. I pray, Lord, that you would make our hearts soft and supple, that you would um, conform them into a reflection of your heart, that your church, your body would reflect your love. And I pray um, as well today that you would just uh, help us to connect the dots between uh, between your heart and our lives, our neighbors, our city, our world. We pray this in your name. Amen. Um, I want to start us off just talking about the foundation for Christians for social justice. Um, we live in a time where in one way or another, social justice is an, is an and at the end of the sentence. You know, We do coffee and social justice, right? Um, but as, as Christians... There is a solid foundation here, and it predates the ministry of Jesus. It goes all the way back to the Pentateuch, to the first five books of the Bible, and I wanted to look at one of those passages really quickly. Um, the passage we're going to look at is in Deuteronomy chapter 10. Um, if you'd like to read along with me, there are Bibles in the back of the pews, just tucked back there. Um, they're the black ones, and uh, you can find Deuteronomy chapter 10. Uh, the book of Deuteronomy is Moses recounting the doings of God for the people of Israel as well as the law that he's given them. And so he's in the midst of recounting this story. He's just gotten, in fact, to the giving of the law itself at Mount Sinai. And then what we're looking at is somewhat of an aside. The book of Deuteronomy is full of these. They act as kind of summaries, big pictures of what God is expecting of his people. Um, and so, pick up here in verse 12, it says this, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, 
to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord which I am commanding you today for your good. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven uh, and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that's in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples, as you are this day. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn, for the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great and mighty, the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and the love of the sojourner, and he loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. And so here, it really touches on all the bases. In fact, if you're familiar with um, other portions of the Pentateuch, other summaries that are given for Israel's behavior, there's a lot of um, similar phrases in this passage. Love the Lord your God with all you are, with your soul. Obey the commandments. Um, but I wanted to draw your attention to, to verses 17 and 18 where it focuses primarily on issues of social justice. In fact, the punchline there is, therefore, love the sojourner. But if you look at the verse that precedes it that describes the character of God, clearly the sojourner is standing in as a single person for a long list of people. In other words, one behavior is presented to sum it all up, but it's not merely the way they treat foreigners, but also um, the other ones that are mentioned in verse 17, or sorry, in verse 18, the fatherless, the widow, and the sojourner. In fact, if you were to read through the Old Testament law as a whole, you'll find that trio over and over again, the fatherless, the widow, and the sojourner. And they all stand in as examples of uh, those who are outside, those who are unprotected, that's where the fatherless and the widows come in, um, those who are most likely to be oppressed, to be taken advantage of. And so here, a command is given that that, that should be of concern to the people. And like we see throughout the Bible, um, from beginning to end, there's a dual emphasis of love your God and love your neighbor, of obey the commandments, which sometimes we can reductionistically reduce down to um, uh, moral commitments such as sexual ethics, such as don't lie or steal. Um, but, but coupled with that is also uh, these things in the category of social justice, in the category of um, our responsibilities to protect other people from injustice. But I want you to notice that this text gives us two primary reasons that we are to be about these things, two primary reasons why we are to love the sojourner. And the first is rooted in who God himself is. Right, that's where it starts. What we get uh, in verse 17 is a description of who God is. And the first thing we notice, it says in verse 17, is that he's the God of gods and the Lord of lords. In other words, his rule, his reign is boundaryless. And if you look at religions as a whole, there's a tendency for religions to be inherently culture-oriented, to be nationalistic, to draw borders. So this is the God of the, this is the God of the, but this statement is bigger than that. 
The statement is broader than that. In fact, there's some pretty profound statements that the prophets make about this God. He says, yes, uh, in one of the minor prophets, yes, I chose you. Yes, I led you out. Yes, I gave you the promised land. And he, but he says, but how do you think the Philistines found their land? How do you think he broadens it? And um, the Bible is constantly emphasizing that God is not merely a local God. God is not merely a national God. Um, and so clearly here, he cares then about all people. Um, it continues on here, and it refers to him as the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. And so the second thing that's emphasized here is the fact that God is just. And this is one of the great proclamations of the scripture that, uh, that God is perfect in his justice, uh, that he is unlike the human rulers we encounter. That's why it says here, take no bribe, right? Clearly, if we're talking about the divine and the human interaction, that's somewhat metaphorical, right? Uh, we can picture bribing a judge. We can picture uh, bribing the police force. But when it emphasizes here, take no bribe, God is distancing himself from that. In fact, probably the most common description of God, the one that's uh, unique uh, that only applies to him consistently is this word holy. And holy just means wholly different. Holy means completely other. It means the only one who is this way. So for example, if a, uh, if a tool for the temple is a holy tool, it's different than the other tools because it's set aside. It's unique for the purpose of being used in the temple, not to be used otherwise. One of the aspects of God's uniqueness, of God's holiness, is that he's unbribable, that he is impartial, that unlike the human beings and authorities we encounter, he is always consistently and perfectly just. But notice how he continues here um, in verse 18. It says, he executes justice for the fatherless and the widow loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. And so here we discover that God's heart is for those who are taken advantage of, or for those who are unprotected. He's a father to the fatherless. And so it zooms right in here on the, um, the missing element in these people's lives. They have no father. And remember, um, in the ancient world, that's, that uh, is a removal of your most important aspect of protection. Uh, that puts you in danger. It leaves you susceptible to all sorts of things. And yet there's a sense where broadly across humanity, the fatherless are not fatherless. God identifies himself as for them, I am their father. For them, I will watch over them. Uh, when he says that he uh, executes justice as well for, for the widow, uh, remember that this is a world before social security. And so if you lost your husband, especially if you lost your children simultaneously uh, and you were a widow, there is no form of employment available to you. Uh, and so, so widow becomes this personification throughout the Bible of a destitute and desperate condition. But God cares for the widow. He hasn't abandoned the widow and so for us then, when we look at these things, the root uh, of why we should care about these things, simply put, is because God does. Jesus makes much of the correlation between 
us and our behavior and the behavior of God. If you look at the Beatitudes, over and over again, the comparison is made. So he says, for example, blessed are the peacemakers, for they are the children of God. And children in that idea is not just that their origin is with God, but that they have their fatherly traits. Um, That's why if you read through the Bible, you'll often encounter the sons of. And so there's the sons of worthlessness or the sons of Belial is the the word that's used. And so that means that you you manifest the family traits of worthlessness. Um, In the same way, the peacemakers are reflecting, they're imaging, they're, uh, they're looking like the heart of God who is a pursuer of peace. And so... We have to watch out then for, um, for this myopic view that doesn't recognize the importance of pursuing justice. We have to watch out for trying to reduce down the Christian life or human life in general, uh, shrinking it down below this category because ultimately this is who God is. This is what he's about. And this is not just something that pops up in Deuteronomy Uh, that we can point to as a verse that we want to pay attention to because it's extremely relevant for our times. If you follow the story through, not only in the narrative portions of the Old Testament, will you constantly find God on the side of the oppressed. But when you get to the prophets, their primary complaint, the one they repeat most often, is that they failed in this way, that they had a religion that was invalidated by the way they treated those who were vulnerable. Just as one example, listen to the opening, uh, the opening argument that Isaiah makes against Israel. He says in chapter 1, In chapter 1, verse 12, he says, When you come to appear before me, who has required you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good. Seek justice, correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless and plead the widow's cause. And so effectively, Isaiah here says, look, you're very religious. You've got the festivals down. You've been diligent in bringing the sacrifices. Your prayers are constantly before me. And God says, frankly, it makes me sick because it's coupled with an ethic that denies the reality of that whole thing. It's coupled uh, with behavior that is incompatible with worshiping this God, incompatible with honoring this God. He says, you raise your hands in worship, but they're covered in the blood of the innocent. And if you read, especially in the minor prophets, you'll see this constant repeated refrain of the invalidation of a religion about this God that doesn't recognize, understand, and walk in the ways of this God. James says that your faith as a whole is unreal. 
if it's not manifested in works. If you say to someone, go, be warm and be filled and don't clothe them and feed them, then what do your words mean, he asks. And it's because it's rooted in the person and uh, the person, the character of God as the father to the fatherless. When we go back to Deuteronomy, though, there's a second reason listed, and very simply put, that's because of the works of God. So not just who he is, but what he has done. It finishes back in Deuteronomy verse uh, 10, verse um, 19. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. And so he draws a parallel here between what God has done for Israel and how he expects them to treat other people. This is actually a similar way that Jesus presents ethics. He says, love just as you've been loved, right? As I have done to you, so also do to one another, he says, as he washes the disciples' feet. John picks this up later, and he says, we love because he first loved us. And he broadens that out, not just from a reciprocal love to the love of God, but an overflowing love. And so he says, if anyone sees his neighbor with the needs of life and does not meet them, how does love abide in them? But the work here, the parallel, I I want you to notice a couple of things. First, for Israel, this is not merely an example of good behavior. God isn't being set up here as a deliverer, therefore you should deliver like him. That's clearly part of the implication, but there's a deeper one here. God has delivered you, therefore you should deliver like him. God has loved you, therefore you should love like him. To draw a comparison in the New Testament, um, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, Beloved, let us be imitators of God as dear children and love one another. And so it's not just that we should imitate a good example, but that we should imitate what we have received, a father to his children. And Uh, Here, it's the same way. Israel can look at its own history and see the relationship here, and it's rooted in what God has done for them. Now, although it's not referenced here in the text, one of the primary places that's pointed to as a grounds for justice in terms of the works of God is creation itself. That God has created male and female, all mankind, in his image. In, his, in the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. It says in Genesis 1.27. And when we get to Genesis chapter 9, that reference point of image of God is given as a grounds for, uh, for or standing against murder. Do not shed the blood of another person for man was created in the image of God. When we get to the New Testament, James is extreme with this thing, and he says, how can you both bless and curse those created in the image of God? He makes a direct correlation between this idea of the imago Dei in Latin, the image of God, and how we treat other people at the most base level, how we talk to other people. When our American founders wrote the document saying, we behold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. There's, a, there's something a little bit farcical about that statement. That all men are created equal isn't inherently a self-evident thing. It's, it's a presupposition that has a foundation that goes lower than that. And they, writing from a worldview built into a Christian understanding, is drawing from this idea that all men were created, and therefore all men are created 
equal. And this concept of creation then predates any sort of deservation, predates any sort of um, other mark that makes your life have dignity. So it's not that you are able-bodied, it's not that you're of the right nationality, it's not that you're of the right gender, male and female, he created in the image. It's across the board because God has created you and has created you in his image, therefore inherently, not only do you as an individual have dignity, but others owe responding to that dignity. Or to put it on our shoulders, not only does it mean that they were created with dignity, but we owe them to live in light of that dignity, okay? And so the basis for human rights as a whole from a Christian understanding is this fact that God not only created mankind, we didn't, therefore we can't dispose of them as we will, but he also created them uniquely. In the midst of all other creation, he created them in their image as his representation, in the unique facets of being able to know and love him. In fact, the, the, what we saw earlier that he cares about the widow and the oppressed and the fatherness is deeply rooted in that idea that he created them for a purpose. But here it focuses on the fact that we also have experienced injustice. We also have experienced oppression. And although here he's talking to a people who literally were under the thumb of the Egyptians, who know what it's like to be slaves, who knows what it's like to experience oppression, when you get to the New Testament, the primary motivation that's presented for the Christian life as a whole is summed up simply in the word grace, okay? It's that God is our deliverer. That's a word that taps right into these things, that he is our savior. That's a word that taps right into these things. And when Jesus comes, he chooses as a verse, to lay his finger on, to define his ministry, to explain his coming, a verse in Isaiah, and when you look at the language of it, what does it say? To give sight to the blind, to set the captives free, to declare the day of jubilee, which was this day in the Old Testament where there was a forgiving of all debts, where there was a resetting of the clocks, where the slaves were completely set free, uh, where the prisoners were released, and all of these things. He chooses that language, and he's not just allegorizing or minimalizing it down to merely a spiritual issue. When we get to the New Testament, there's not an abandoning of the external world for the sake of the internal problem. To make a distinction or draw a line between saving a soul and feeding a person is a distinction that doesn't even fit the language that the Bible uses. The word it uses for soul is synonymous with the whole person, not merely some metaphysical minor minor aspect of who you are that will survive this body. And when you look at Jesus' ministry, do you not see him caring both about inside and outside, both about the issues of sin and forgiveness as well as the issues of hunger and injustice and oppression. We see Jesus uh, doing these things, but, but there's a couple of clarifications we need to make. First off, I want to just address this very simply, that, um, that the motive of grace, that God has freely given me what I did not deserve, outstrips the other possible motives for compassion, for justice, Uh, one of the primary ones that we encounter all the time is guilt, okay? And so guilt effectively says you have 
they have not, how can you not do something? And, and we all feel that impulse. There's not necessarily anything bad with that impulse, but ultimately, guilt leaves justice flat. Ultimately, it only carries us so far. Um, another motivation I think we could label sympathy. Can you imagine what it's like? And that also is a valuable thing, but this grace goes beyond that. It says, this is your condition also. Let me give you just one illustration of how this plays out in terms of generosity. Paul addressing the church in Corinth is trying to take an offering for another church, this one in Jerusalem, in a time of great financial need. And so instead of uh, painting uh, a picture of what life is like in Jerusalem at the moment, instead of um, telling them, come on, you really should give, he does something different. He says, for... He who was rich, being Jesus, became poor so that you being poor might become rich. He roots their pocketbooks and their behaviors directly in their eternal salvation and makes the comparison there. Jesus does the same thing in the Sermon on the Mount. When he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, he's emphasizing a a similarity, a connection, an overlap between the poor literally and those who are entering into the kingdom of God. That both are destitute without God. That both have needs that only God can fill. That neither can point to a line that justifies God's saving of them. And they're wholly, uh, they're, um, wholly delivered by someone other than themselves. The second thing I wanted to say is not only is grace a better motivator, but it's an overflowing motivator. And so sometimes I think we get caught up and we, we see social justice in these issues as merely a bait to preach the gospel. And so we love people so that we can tell them about Jesus. But when you look at the New Testament text itself, when you look at the behavior of Jesus, and I'll just give you one illustration, even when you look at Paul, the great missionary who devoted his life to proclaiming the message of the gospel in places where it had never been proclaimed, he says to the church of the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, He says, you became dear to me, and so I gave you not only the gospel, but also our lives. What is he saying there? He's saying that love motivated him to share the gospel, and love motivated him to go beyond the gospel. In other words, the gospel and our uh, our receiving of it motivates us to pursue these things. It's not merely we do one so that we can preach the gospel. When the gospel really takes root in your heart, it inherently leads to love, and love manifests not only in the preaching of the gospel, but also in these other ways. So, in summary, for us, you cannot have the God of the Bible without caring about injustice. You cannot proclaim to follow the God of the Bible and not be involved in the fight of oppression, in the feeding of the poor. You cannot uh, worship on Sunday and not care Monday through Friday. Those distinctions are impossible and one of the greatest motivators for ministry I've found just personally uh, is, is the identification factor. Okay, here's what I mean. I mean that love comes naturally when it's we and not them. Okay. 
And what you see, both in created in the image of God, which is a we, recognizing that we like them, that uh, the fall uh, as, as this taint of human nature, the sin nature that we all share, what the Bible call, or excuse me, what theologians call original sin, that puts us in the we, but also what we have received in Christ puts us in the we. In the 80s, during the AIDS epidemic, I am convinced that this is why Christians weren't on the front lines. Bubonic plague, we were there. Leprosy, we were there. But the reason I think that it's always motivated Christians to be there is because it was we. Why did Martin Luther stay in his church while the plague was ransacking Wittenberg? Because it was us. For whatever reason, whatever reason in the 80s, it was them. And so it was inherently out of our purview, not our problem, these types of things. In Ireland, St. Patrick who had grown up as a slave to the Irish, escaped and then came back as a missionary to Ireland. At one point in his lifetime, he writes a letter to his own people, the Britons, because they are now coming, stealing the Irish and making them slaves. And he does the most profound thing in that letter. He refers to himself and the Irish people as we. He so identifies with them that he's now one of them. He's now one of the Irish. And when it says, blessed are the poor in spirit, when it says you being poor so that you might become rich, when it recognizes that we were the ones in chains, that we were the ones in darkness, when you balance out that thing, then inherently what happens is it becomes we. And that really just brings us back to who God is. Because God didn't just do something about our suffering, he entered into it. He became a man. He became one of us. He entered in and he endured all of that pain and injustice. He endured all of those things and he endured it for us. And so it's reciprocal and right and appropriate that his heart then becomes our heart. That God's plan becomes our plan. So as you listen today, keep, keep that in mind. Let's pray and we'll take a break. Father, I found in my own studies and communication that this issue uh, can be challenging for a couple of reasons. And one is because, um, because the Bible is filled with so much information. We're constantly minimizing it to understand it. We're organizing it to understand it. We're summarizing, and it's really easy for things we don't see to fall through the cracks. But if you read with your eyes open, you see a God who loves justice, who calls his people to follow in his footsteps, to fight against oppression. In the words of Job, to break the teeth of the oppressor and deliver the victim from his mouth. We see it lived out in Jesus' life. That he didn't allow categories or borders or boundaries or distance to interfere in, in ministry and in love. That he cared about people holistically. We see it in the early church when they gave up what they had so that all would have something, so that all would be without need. And we watch as it overflows throughout church history uh, into the building of hospitals and the starting of NGOs and, uh, and doing all these things internationally and worldwide. Um, so many missionaries can resonate with the uh, heart of Paul that says, I came to preach the gospel, but because you have become dear to me, I've given you my entire life. And that's because of who you are, and it's because of what you've done. And so I pray that you would root those truths very deeply in us.
that we would recognize these issues aren't issues for those people, that they're our issues, that we are made in the image of God, that we are in desperate need of a Savior, that we have experienced the profound and transformative love and grace of Christ um, that changes not just how we feel about these issues, not just if we see these issues, but changes the reality of these issues to being things that we must address because they are the work that you've given us to do. We ask this in your name. Amen. Okay. It's 9.58. At 10.05, we're going to get started again. Like I said, grab a cup of coffee or whatever, um, and then Travis uh, will be joining us in just a minute.